0: Hello and welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine.
1: Good morning, Philip.
2: Sandy, it is a fine, crisp morning. How are you?
1: I'm fine, except right before we came into this recording studio, Mm -hmm. you pointed out the fact that I have creases on my face from my CPAP machine. And for those that are not in the know, like, you know, I think you've got it figured out by now. CPAP machine helps me sleep because I have sleep apnea.
2: And how long have you had a CPAP machine?
1: 23 years. Had that baby strapped to my face every night.
2: Yeah, so is there any wonder there's lines on your face? <laughs> I
1: know. I'm trying to get them out. I don't know. For about you that. to notice, I thought they went away within an hour, but a little extra today.
2: Maybe today I just decided to tell you.
1: Oh, <laughs> that's true. But I'm glad we're not talking about me today because we have a guest and it's really the Bill and Phil show.
2: Today. You're part of this. Because you always have those insightful questions as well.
1: Well, I just keep you from completely derailing.
2: Going down the rabbit holes.
1: And down and down and down, gotcha. and down and
2: down. Hey, Bill. How's it going? Would you like to introduce yourself and
3: say who you are and all that kind of good stuff? Well, first, I, I think I probably need to say that my name is Bill and I also have a CPAP machine. Ah. so.
1: You have no creases today, though.
3: I I get up early enough that I don't have the creases. Years ago, I went for that test, and I I asked the person, who's going to win this bet? Do I have sleep apnea or not? I'm betting I don't. My wife is betting that I do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And when I woke up, the first words I heard were, your wife won the bet. (laughs) Well,
1: you know what I love about that? My story is different. My husband thought I was a hypochondriac. And that's what was causing all my Did you say ailments. A
2: hypochondriac or a hypochondriac? Do you have a fear of hippos?
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. But anyway, well, so we have, we have now shared our relationship there we, completely. There it is, right there. And That's exactly what this marriage is mm-hmm. like. But well, let's get back to you.
3: This, this is a fun show. My, my <laughs> name is Bill uh, Bill Stoffer, yeah. and uh, first and foremost, I'm a person in long term recovery, which means to me that I haven't had to use a drink or a drug since I was 21 years old. Geez, what was that? Decades and decades ago? It it was in the time of dinosaurs, (laughs) and uh, I I call myself a formerly young person still in recovery. There you go. I think uh, we talk a lot with
2: TJ, who's a, a member of the CCAR staff, and he's of the mindset that you're a young person in recovery, maybe based on the age you found recovery, and so if you're you were 21 that was unusual back then wasn't it
3: it would back then.
2: well it is so he's been it's been what how many years
3: it's i'm i'm uh, working on 36 so and you're right 21 there wasn't anybody in my community in recovery in my age group Mm -hmm. um so i had to listen to what people were saying and sort of edit out Mm -hmm. when they said they had broken up relationships i had to be honest and Basically, say nobody really wanted to be around me. <laughs> yeah,
2: right. So, what do you do for work today, though? We'll start there and then we'll dive into your childhood a little bit.
3: Uh oh. Well, my, my current position is I'm the executive director of PROA, the Pennsylvania Recovery Organizations Alliance. We're the statewide recovery community organization of Pennsylvania.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: We were founded in 98. Our, our first executive director was Donna Dimitrovic. Yeah, good uh, friend of mine. I've been there since 2012. Mm-hmm. And you talk
2: a lot about Pennsylvania like being different kind of worlds in the entire state. Talk to me a little bit about that.
3: Well, I was born and raised in Pennsylvania. So I'm, mm-hmm. in, I'm from Bethlehem, which was over on the east, eastern part of the state. of Steel Town. Uh, and it, it is. It, there are different communities from east to the west to the north to the south. Um, and I think one of the... One of the real values that I've had of is traveling around Pennsylvania and meeting with all the different recovery communities mm-hmm. and listening that they're all different. You know, mm-hmm. there's a, just a tremendous diversity in how people approach recovery, the kinds of resources that they use, the kinds of things that they think about doing it, and it's it's pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, cool. So you ready?
3: We didn't start out yet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, what's you the know, first 20, question? Twenty-one, right? Yeah. So yeah. What's the first so, question? How did life start out
3: for you, Bill? Mm-hmm. How did life start out for me?
1: What did it look like? What is your family?
3: Now, actually, my first story that I was told, I I almost died at birth, and then Doctor. Sievert Coop was my physician, and actually, because one of the Kennedy children had died eighteen months before I was born. They had investigated what that kid had and without that I probably wouldn't have been alive wow. so there aren't a lot of pictures of me as a kid because I had been ill during that time
1: yeah
3: uh, and, and so inside older brothers so I've I' have three brothers and two older ones would would tell me that I was adopted because there were no pictures of me as a kid so, mm-hmm. which is what brothers do but uh, <laughs> I' mean all joking aside I have pretty good childhood
1: mm-hmm. yeah younger brother so two older one younger. Pretty close together.
3: Yeah, I think we were closer younger. Yeah, I mean there were there were some really good times in the seventies, and there are things that happened in our family and also in our community uh, mm-hmm. that that I'll talk a little bit about. Um, so you know, our, it's a, it was a steel town, Bethlehem Steel Corporation. Almost everybody in our town wasn't that like uh, Tom Cruise and Risky Business, wasn't that Bethlehem steel as town? Pittsburgh. Oh, that was Pittsburgh. Another big steel town. Yeah, yeah. That was U.S. Steel. Bethlehem's okay. on the other side. Gotcha. And the whole town was pretty much formed around the steel, as mm-hmm. it was called. And and there were great years, um, but the you know a lot of towns got hit by economic change. And when that started to happen, I mean, I have some thoughts on this, but um, I have thoughts about the seventies as well. Um, I know, do too, but I can't remember them. <laughs> It, I remember yes <laughs> <laughs> the um w- w- there were a lot of economic changes in the late 70s and and, and things kind of changed then but like we grew up in an era I don't know we were kids we could roam around and do things and um, the early years particularly were I think pretty pretty cool you know did you live in a city
2: suburban suburb
1: I've been suburban, to I a no, suburban it's it's suburb. rural suburban. No, it's
2: suburb. Suburb is what I'm trying to say. I, I think I'm the
3: country. Yeah, it depends on what you think of a city, right? Yeah. I mean, I live in Allentown now, which is considered the third largest city in Pennsylvania. It, it it's a city. Bethlehem, the area that I live in, would have been more urban, you okay. know. And and they're, you're right. They like you get out of the end of town, and it, mm-hmm. it gets rural fairly quickly. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, well, a lot of Pennsylvania is pretty rural. That's right. Yeah. Open land. So when you say you roamed around, did you roam around the streets or or did you, or both?
3: Um, I roamed around mostly the streets. So, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, I just think of my early childhood, uh, you know, getting on a bicycle. And the world is such a big place. And just, you know, roaming around the neighborhood and and finding things and hanging out with my friends and, you know, just exploring the world we're in. I, Mm -hmm. I mean, those are some really good memories that I had back then.
2: I caught snapping turtles.
1: Just out of nowhere. Well, I was I thinking about <laughs> I'm, I'm like, okay.
2: exploring the neighborhood. <laughs> I'm I was I'd ride the bike and Moji and I we'd go catch snapping turtles.
3: I'm waiting for a bad joke. No, no, no bad joke,
2: <laughs> I knew that Our,
1: one was actually a true memory. A random so. thought. <laughs> what? What? Just, just full disclosure. If he's going down a dad joke. I will start to tilt my head waiting for it to come, so, mm. so that's an indicator. Okay. That's
3: okay. one of the things I've learned over the last few days. For, for the listeners, Phil tells dad jokes.
1: Bad dad jokes. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a champ, because, and I up. have the
2: T-shirt to prove it, so mm-hmm. I have to live up to my status until it's taken from me. Yeah. And poor Don's shaking it out of the no. I think
1: I'll, I'll have, have to do it. is buy somebody else the t T-shirt, and I can put an end to this. <laughs> but. Yeah,
2: maybe. Um, you're in the streets of Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. Now that could be a joke, but we'll just leave that alone
3: (laughs) I I wouldn't characterize it as the mean streets of Bethlehem You know, it's not that kind of town I gotcha So, I mean, it's actually a really great place to grow up Bethlehem's a really nice town
2: So describe, go back as far as you can And describe like one of your good days out on your bike What, What kind of things would you do or did you do And who are some of your
3: friends that you hung out with? I mean, I just remember, you know, growing up as a kid and getting a bicycle, which is the first to me. Like that's independence. Like yeah, you're on your own. What kind of bike? Do you remember? Um, I, I mean, it was in the '70s. They had like, like, like a red. It was a red bicycle. Um, I think it had like tassels on it and things like that. I yeah. mean, they were like it was a '70s bicycle. I remember having a
2: chopper with a small little wheel in front and the big orange bike. With my the first one suit. that I
1: bought with my savings. yeah Powder blue with a black banana seat. Yeah, the banana and the, seats. and the handlebars. Mm-hmm. What are those?
2: Chopper
3: handlebars,
1: Man. right? Or I had. What, was what were they called?
3: Yeah, you I know. think they were like I had the I had the banana seat and the. Um, the chopper bars I did not have the long fork not yeah. not, not, not and those are hard to mm-hmm. those are hard to ride very fun though, yeah, so where'd you go so what what do you remember doing just just roaming around the alleys and streets and seeing what was there and you know there were so where I lived there were, it was near some old canals and um and a river and uh, a railroad switchyard and there's a bunch of abandoned buildings down in there. Um, as well as, like the, the water the water sewer, mm-hmm. um, you know where where drainage water would go down. And so we went to all those places, mm-hmm. like, roaming around underground. And my mama's heart is like,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> see, you know, I think it was an era where, like, we
2: used to go in the big sewer pipes too and see where they come out. It's not the brightest thing to
3: do. Ride our bikes in there.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah. I would ride my bike. I put a flashlight on the handlebars and ride through the sewers. Wow! There you go. There you go. That like, that's going to live for infamy now, right? Well, I don't know. <laughs> oh,
2: it's, it's, it's it's a it's a memory. It is. Um, what what were your friends like? Who was one of your best
3: friends? My, or were your brothers? My best friend's name was Joe. Yeah, uh, and he was a he's a, a, a pretty neat kid, um, and uh, we we just get into trouble together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I had two older brothers. Uh, Doug and Ron, um, and like we, we we would like, do kid things. Mm-hmm. You know? um, build tree forts. Oh, awesome! That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think they were building us like a when they were building a, a a road near our house. We we grabbed some old wire that well, it's not old wire. I think it was electrical cable that they were gonna string mm-hmm. and made like this thing that we strapped to a tree at the top of a hill and then at the bottom of a hill and took a bicycle handlebar and and sort of go, like we created our zip own line. zip line. Yeah, you just had to jump before you hit the tree. <laughs> so, Yeah, we did those kinds of
2: things too. You probably didn't. Nope. 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 No way I did those nope. definitely. So when did, um, um, what kind of student were you?
3: Yeah, I think in the early years, I was a, I was a good student. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I've always been a reader. So probably from five on, I would read everything. I've read encyclopedias, dictionaries, almanacs, anything that had pages I read all the time. And in the early years, I was a good student. I lost interest. Like when you get into junior high school and high school, I actually was using drugs at that point. I started in early. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I could have been a really good student, mm-hmm. but I lost interest in the whole thing. I didn't like. I re, I rejected the authority of school. Yeah, yeah.
1: Do you grow up both parents in the home?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: No. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And so, when was your first use, and how did that happen? So I was, I was eleven.
3: Uh, well, actually, I had a grandfather one time. I, so I have an Irish Pennsylvania Dutch family. And a, Irish. Pennsylvania Dutch. Yeah,
2: mom was Irish, so are you father like, was Pennsylvania Dutch. Are you like Dutch. Amish?
3: No, Pennsylvania,
2: Pennsylvania Dutch is not Amish. Oh, well, what is? what are Amish? They're Amish. Oh yeah, well, Where are they from? Germany. Oh, German?
3: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're similar areas.
2: Well, how come, like when I went to visit the Amish with my grandmother back when I was 15, that was a trip, we got to ride in a bus, but we would go to Pennsylvania Dutch country, and there were Amish there. Do I, have, do I have that all mixed up? <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. And they have they have horses and buggies and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And we went. Oh, We drove into this barn. The bus parked in the barn. This feast they had laid out was like fried chicken, mashed potatoes, corn, the best apple pie. It it was the best food I, I think I've ever eaten. It was Did you incredible. not have
1: breakfast? Because you were kind of glowing a little bit. I no, food does that to me. <laughs> I
2: had up. yeah. They have had comfort food down. Yo, yeah, yeah.
3: Oh, it was good gravy too. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But so back I, to Bill.
3: Okay. Yeah. Okay. First use. I was I was 11 years old, and I was hanging out with the older kids because in in my younger brother is significantly younger than me, mm-hmm. so I was hanging out with the older kids, my older brothers and their friends, and they smoked pot, mm-hmm. and that was the first time I smoked pot. And I I actually started talking about. The rest of my family. I remember the first time that I remember a substance feeling good, though, was I was probably about seven or eight. And my grand, I had a sore throat. And my grandfather gave me a shot of Drambuie, said, this will help. And I don't know if it helped my sore throat, but I remember the feeling, (laughs) right? I have a bad
2: Drambuie story,
3: but
2: (laughs) (laughs) drank a little bit too much of it one day.
1: Wow, I haven't actually heard a Phil story.
2: Oh, this one? Yeah. Oh, this was when Matt Sharp and I, we were actually n- near Wicca visiting. Uh, my dad went down to visit Mr. Armstrong, Mal. Armstrong, and they had a house right on, I think, actually, Chapman Road. And we stole a bottle of Drambuie. And um, we drank it, and I think we got drove, the cops picked us up and drove <laughs> us back to Mr. Armstrong's, and they put us to bed. But I never drank Drambuie again. Oh, so sick. But anyway, you never heard that, huh? Oh. I had to be like 14 or 15 at the time.
3: I have a southern coverage like experience oh, like me that. Me too. Oh,
2: yeah. Well, I think most of them I do. Right? Now that you mentioned, <laughs> yeah,
1: there's a whole list of alcohols said that. <laughs> well, smoking the
2: gra- cab driver always told me that uh, uh, it all tastes the same coming back up. So, <laughs> oh
1: <I>
2: Lord, <love> <laughs> I'm not sure
3: that's the case.
2: Okay? Uh, well, <laughs> From experience. All right. All right. Well, uh, that's what he said. But yeah.
1: So So you're 11 smoking pot with your brothers and their friends.
3: Yep. And and I, you know, I think. Did you get high the first time you smoked? I don't know if I did. Yeah. I I think I certainly, by the second, you have to learn how to do it. Yeah. Which was was a big thing. And, you know, I think Mm -hmm. when you're a little kid, it's odd. You want to be grown up. Mm -hmm. You know, and I felt like that was being grown up. Yeah. Yeah.
2: When you're grown up, you want to be a kid. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Where did it lead you?
3: Where did it lead? You know, yeah. it took off really quickly. And I, I, I believe that, um, you know, substance use, everybody talks about where it comes from and all that. And I, mm-hmm. I, generally speaking, I, that some of it's genetic. You know, there's certainly a lot of relationship between, you know, trauma uh, and, and addiction. And an age of onset can be a huge thing too. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had some stuff going against me, including genetics, because uh, I, you know, I do have alcoholism that runs in my family, so it took off really quickly. You know, I had older brother I had friends whose older brothers were bikers, and they were doing biker like things. And in our time, not bicycles. No, not motor bikers. Motor bikers, like motor bikers, Hells gangs, Angels? pagans. Okay, yeah, and so you know, moving meth, methamphetamine around, and things like that. Wow. So those are what the older kids were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so. You know, that stuff took off really quickly. And I I don't know, during that time, I don't think that, I think, I I mentioned the part of the story with the the steel and the economic uh, changes. I look back at my childhood and a lot of us kids in in my community ended up with substance use problems. And it's not that our parents didn't care. I I had good parents. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: I think they were preoccupied. Like everybody was worried about losing their job and what was going to happen in the community. And that was a huge thing. When I talked to people that I grew up with, like all of our parents, like we were worried that you know the town was going to close down. Essentially, you know, did it? Eventually, was, it did. I mean, if it, uh, the, the uh, town about is about okay. when? About when did the
2: steel industry close down? Well, in,
3: in 1970, there's a day in Bethlehem is known as Black Friday when 120,000 people lost their job. Oh. 120,000 for the company. Yeah.
2: And and so and were, were your parents some of
3: those people? Uh, my dad made it through that. Now, he wow. ended up working there for forty-two years. He went from being a civil engineer to working for the law department in doing. Uh, wow, like <laughs> when they with a steel company, they were getting sued for asbestos cases. So they made Liberty ships for World War II, and the maker of the asbestos had gone out of business. The only people left to sue was a steel company, and so. There were lawsuits going for years and years and years. And so he ended up involved in those and testifying about, you know, what was in those ships and and why the steel wasn't at fault. And it just, the way that lawsuits work. But he ended up making it. But, like, a lot of of my friends' parents uh, did get laid off. Do you remember that day? I don't know if I remember the day specifically, but I definitely remember the era. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember that things changed, you know, that that not just in my family but in a lot of families that everybody was worried that the axe was going to fall or for some that it had because yeah. it was good times I mean that that company you know people would get you know 13 weeks vacations. I met a janitor without a high school diploma who back in the 80s was making seventy thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. as a you know a janitor yeah so, um, these were good good jobs yeah and they went away Wow. Yeah.
2: I don't even know what to say to that. I mean, so you lived in this, so yeah, and so a lot of the your crew was all in the drug alternative
1: methods of income generation,
2: drug trade, drug um, use, um, so. When, I didn't, what happened with you?
3: I didn't get as much involved in like drug trade. I just uh-huh. was using a lot.
2: Well, you said they were moving meth around they and were. all that. Yeah. yeah. You, were a, you were a consumer.
3: I was more of a consumer. I was not an unlicensed pharmaceutical sales representative. <laughs> I, I was a consumer. Oh, <laughs> gotcha. Um, and and I, it it, uh, it took off very quickly. So I ended up with a pretty significant substance use problem. I think I was probably a, addicted by 14 or 15. Wow. Uh, and using multiple substances like alcohol, methamphetamine, cocaine, pot—all you know—were your parents aware? I'm not sure. I think they were. Well, I, they were aware of uh, of some things. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. And I, uh, so I remember this story where my mom had heard, I guess that uh, that marijuana distorts your sense of time, and I, I, I. Um, I came home, and we had this, like, kitchen with an alarm clock on a stove. And the seconds hand made a clicking sound every time it it hit the second hand, the seconds hand. Mm -hmm. So when one minute would go by, it would make a click. Mm -hmm. And I'm standing by this thing, and she asked me to tell her when a minute would go by. And I I was actually quite impaired at the time. And and I was waiting, and it felt like an hour. And then I heard that click. Well, actually, when she asked me, I heard a click. And I'm like, all I gotta do is gotta listen for that next click. <laughs> and and I when it went click again, I said, "There's a minute." And then uh-huh. she just kind of let me go. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I I mean I don't know. I-
1: that was her <laughs> test. Oh <my> is <laughs> my
2: son using drugs? <laughs> yeah. Phew, he's not. <laughs> he got that one right. He's not. He's, he's okay. I don't so know. So how were your older brothers, though, in all this? Were, did they raise any concerns? With
3: They were all doing similar things.
2: Yeah, were they raising concerns with the parents, though, at all?
3: Was um, I anybody think, in trouble at
2: all? Or any discussions you remember? Or?
3: Yeah, I mean, there were, there were some. Mm-hmm. But they kind of went away. I mean, you know, we just i I got grounded a couple times, you know mm-hmm. i I think it was a different era i don't it was you,
2: it wasn't using wasn't that big a deal or it was or was it just part of the culture kind of
3: my, I've thought about this a lot yeah and, and i it felt like it was part of the culture or perhaps thought of as a rite of passage, yeah. you know, and I think for some it was and mm-hmm. but for people like me, it was not. It ended up going bad. You know, and, and by the time I was like 19 or 20, I could tell that my trajectory in life was was changing, that, you know, the kind yeah. of things w- weren't going to happen for me.
2: I was always terrified my parents would find out. And I think they did find out a few times, um, but there were never any repercussions. And to the point where I remember being 18 and having a keg party in my backyard because my dad had showed up to other keg parties and was just drinking with us. So he said, we might as well have the keg in our backyard. And I'm like, that is a weird thing. To be with all your buddies and everybody there, and your dad standing by the keg talking with all your friends, and you're like,
1: but it's not unusual. But is that
2: a rite of passage? And I never really thought of it maybe as a rite of passage kind of thing. Like but, in that
3: era, like yeah. you're you're describing things that I had seen not just in my own family but in mm-hmm. other families. In that era, I think that that was, it didn't raise the kinds of red flags that it may have, you know, ten or fifteen years. Beyond that, right?
1: I don't know but we've had countless stories in our own town of parents hosting high school drinking parties Mm -hmm. They feel better parents feel better cuz well we took the keys
2: and they're under their care Yeah, you know, they're gonna do it anyway So they might as well do it under
3: supervision,
1: but then they're using your drinking with them Mm -hmm. So what? what does that mean? Yeah. That's a whole other thing. It is, but for <laughs> listeners out there, there's
3: tremendous liability in doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: yes yeah and, I, and I hope you
1: experience the impact.
3: <laughs> all right.
2: Um, all right, so you ended up, are we getting close to
3: 21, and when the the moment was? Yeah, well, and, and like, I was actually going to be a tech person. I went to this thing called Governor's School of Arts, which was, you know, for lighting, design, theater stuff, acting, and... Mm-hmm. Um, and a bunch of other things, and I, so that was like a good. That was like my last, one of my last good times, eighty two, eighty three, um, and and I had this trajectory of getting involved in uh, in lighting design and mm-hmm. building sets and cool, sound yeah. and all that. And then as soon as high school ended, I I just it nothing it seemed to work anymore. I mean, before that, I could use and function. I could drink and use a lot and function. Like I, uh, Lehigh University, which is in my area, it's an engineering school had, has like a phenomenal, my dad's a graduate of Lehigh. Uh, they, they have a leg- legendary, it's a legendary party school or mm-hmm. it had been. And I, I remember going up there as a kid and drinking with the college students and I weighed like 110 and I could drink along with them. Like I had the ability to, you know, metabolize alcohol at a very high rate. Um, and didn't think anything of it, of course, you wouldn't Mm -hmm. until it changed. And I I mean, I started to, that stopped working for me. Um, And and so I, my substance use became chaotic. I had blackouts. Um, I started to uh, steal to get drugs. Um, And I became a fairly unreliable person. And that so that and that's the end like this I don't have this huge story of living on the streets or horrible things like that i just there were some insights around me in my life um, that substance use was not good uh, was was gonna kill me uh and i I had a an insight i actually so i i could not use predictably anymore. And I got into some trouble. I went to a wedding, and I acted uh, bizarrely because I was very high. And it upset a lot of my friends. And then I'm like, i got to do something about this. I went to some 12-step meetings, and I listened to these people. And they're all older than me. Mm-hmm. You know? How did
1: you even know to go?
3: I had a family member who had been made to go to a 12-step meeting when he was in the military. And so this idea <laughs> that it was there. hmm um, and I went to this meeting, like they're all old to me. And, you know, they, they seemed like they were nice people. It's actually one of the oldest meetings in, on the East Coast, is the one I ended up at. It's interesting history of the place. But, you know, I listened to them, and they were great people, and they said things like sub, like an alcoholic or an addict doesn't have one. And I, I was a smart kid. And I'm thinking and listening, and I'm like, well, I, you know, I've, done, I've not done this test. I've never actually tried <laughs> to have one. Like, I totally misheard what they said. Mm-hmm. And so I, I decided that the only logical thing to do would be to experiment. All right. Um, and so I went out and I, you know, drinking was the number one substance, depending on how much money I had and what was around, I added other substances onto that, which is pretty regularly. But, mm-hmm. um, so I went out and I had one drink, one night, and I, was in, I, I, I succeeded in I had a drink and it worked. And I you know, I did the experiment again. I had a second night. I went out, I had one drink and I worked and it worked. It was a Thursday night. And then the third night, like I am doing phenomenal with this.
1: (laughs) Feeling pretty good.
3: I went out and I had one drink, but it it is Friday night. Right. Right. So I decided to have two. And for me, you know, there's this thing that would click in. Like I had no There's no reliability whether it was going to be one or a blackout. Mm -hmm. Um, And that night ended with a DUI where I rolled the car into the back of a police. Like he pulled me over and I got out of the car, but I forgot to put it in park. So I rolled (laughs) my car into his. Um, And is probably, that was like 10 days after my initial exposure mm-hmm. to recovery, mm-hmm. and I realized, I just, this isn't going to work, mm-hmm. and it's going to kill me, and I need to, I need to at least try this, um, and I went back, and I actually asked for help, and I, I started down the pathway of recovery.
2: Did you go away to a treatment setting at all? Or no. Just started... 12-step meetings. I
3: tried to start 12-step meetings, went to these 12-step meetings, and I ran into a bunch of guys said, you should try this outpatient. We're all going, and it's kind of helpful to us. And I thought, like, what? Like, I knew of the Betty. I knew back then Betty Ford had, had a problem. Right. Mm-hmm. She was, like, the most visible person with a problem in the country. Yeah. And, like, I knew there was a Betty Ford, like center mm-hmm. for rich people <laughs> that was the only thing I'm like what treatment you mean like what rich people get mm-hmm. and they're like no down the street you know in on the other side of town and it was a publicly funded outpatient and I, I went there and there are a bunch of recovering people there uh, and they taught me about addiction and and what it was and they gave me tools to support my recovery and it felt good mm-hmm. uh, so I kept going back and I started to think about, you know, what I wanted to do. There wasn't really a safe place for a 21-year-old kid to go, so I used to actually walk a lot. I used to have Walkmans, which the younger listeners don't know what those are, but you know, they're big, clunky headphone things that you put cassettes in, and I would walk for miles during the day, and I'd go to my part-time job at Taco Bell,
1: yeah.
3: and uh, and uh, I, I hit a magic word there. <laughs> uh, hell Yeah. And then, and then, um, Two and, words. and then I go to, you know, go to meetings and think about what I want to do. I ended up volunteering for, uh, Habitat for Humanity just because I stumbled into it uh-huh. and it's good stuff started happening. Um, you know, ended up w- with a group of people who went over to France to do some volunteer work, mm-hmm. um, and I, like all I had to do is raise money for a plane ticket, and like I started to realize, well, I could actually have a life. I could use mm-hmm. and die, or I could have a life. And wow! I, I had that clarity, uh, and it wasn't easy, but I don't think I—I—I I, I was fairly convinced from what was happening. I mean, having three to five blackouts a week. Um, and not being able to look in the mirror, I think the biggest consequence for me is I I, had, I loathed who I was. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be that way. Wow,
2: were you still living at home?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and mom and dad, family supportive.
3: Mostly, I you know I mean there's there's substance use occurring. So you know when you change that dynamic in a family and you get into recovery, that creates a little bit of conflict. <laughs> And there mm-hmm. was some of that conflict in my family. Yeah, like you're not going to have to do this forever. Right kinds of things, yes. and I, not not in a malicious way. They just didn't understand.
1: Mm-hmm. My parent, my family had no idea the level of my usage, and so they almost had to be convinced they had a problem. And I'm still not sure even even when my mom passed away, but by that point, that she even understood that. I was an alcoholic or anything to do with that. Um, And then I was best friends with Phil's sister. And I remember she thought I was just doing it to like fit in with Phil and his crowd, (laughs) just labeling (laughs) myself an alcoholic. recovery crowd. Yeah. And then she came to hear my story. And it explained all the things that she could never understand about me. (gasps) That's why you did that? Oh, that's oh, like there was Mm -hmm. all these epiphanies that she Mm -hmm. was having. Um, mm-hmm. Hearing me share wow. my story because I, I similarly um, started. Well, I started using at seventeen, started drinking, stopped drinking at twenty uh, six ish. So like a ten year run, and bad things happen, but not the typical things. You know, no legal, no job, no no implications with family. But it is funny how sometimes you have to convince folks, and then. How do your family respond to that? I've been told that I polarized the family with my sobriety.
3: <laughs> I don't think I was told that, but I felt that at times. You know, mm-hmm. so it's not it's not like a beaver cleaver kind of story of recovery. Yeah. yeah. And I think I think that overall that it's been positive, not just for me, but for some of my surviving family members, you know. Um, you but just it just
2: used to leave it to beaver reference. I did. You're the first guest that's ever done that. Congratulations.
3: Do I, Is there
1: a prize? <laughs> sure. <laughs> we got, got a T-shirt. <laughs>
2: um, I know, so you talk a little bit about being able to go to France and do all that, and we've had the ability to spend some time together all, over the last couple of days that I uh, have thoroughly enjoyed. And I know that you have a um, a long career in addiction Um, treatment and providing service and now within a with a recovery community organization and I'm fascinated with your experience and you're also very well recognized throughout the country as uh, being a voice for recovery advocacy and and a leader in the field Uh, how'd you get there and how'd you get here and tell us what that was like how you evolved and some of the things you've learned and you uh,
3: take as much time as you need.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the answers to some of those questions. You actually. do. Because uh, you, you already shared them with me.
3: Well, you know, I, I got, so I got into recovery and I looked around at what I wanted to do. And I recognized that, that this work meant something to me. Yeah. And so I started, I actually, when I remember talking to my counselor in, in that outpatient, I'm like, how do you do this? And the person, he was a wise person. And he said, you got to first work on yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, then it will work out. And, and I, I took that to heart. Um, and eventually I got a job at a, as a tech at, a, at an adolescent treatment center. It was sort of sketchy, sketchy place, you know, and I got through that. Um, and I, I got, I ended up working for the organization that uh, I had been served in. Um, and I ended up running that outpatient for about a decade uh, then I ran a, a longer-term residential program. This is all public stuff, so not glitzy treatment, mm-hmm. you know, uh, treatment, public treatment. And and that longer-term treatment center mostly had people who were homeless or coming out of, you know, state prisons who didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, helping them get to the process where they had, a you know, employment and they're stable psychiatrically and medically and, um, you know, they got a job and... The day after they left our treatment center looked a lot like the day before other than they were sleeping in a different place and they had met the people in that recovery house before they left our facility and pretty neat things that I got to see and do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, I've had some good mentors. I mean, There's a lot of good advocacy that goes back some decades mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania and I, I latched into some of those people. I think in the early years... It was around me, but also when I started to get frustrated with the things that I did, I saw that weren't working, I started to get involved and listen um, and actually become politically involved. Right? Mm-hmm. I talked to my my state representative at the time was a guy named Charlie Dent, um, who, uh, you know, I, I remember him looking, having some legislation and me walking to his office and saying, um, hey, this is I, I don't. This is written in this way. Could it be written in a different way? And mm-hmm. you do that a couple times, and they actually start calling you. Yeah. And Charlie's Curry went to the state rep. He went to the state senate. Then he went to Congress. And mm-hmm. you know he's, you know he's retired now. Um, but uh, you know, like that kind of interaction, like changing policy, you know, which I then became got involved in, and I, I think. Philosophically for me, if you're you know, if you're involved in service, you actually have to look at advocacy to improve that service. And and for me now doing advocacy work, I have to dig down to get more involved in the ground, you know. So like whatever you're doing as a primary, you need to pay attention to the other side of that, if that makes sense, at least for me. It does.
2: Um, as your career involved, um, talk about what happened personally. I, your family now? My family. I'm married.
3: Yeah. We don't have kids. I got two dogs. My yeah. wife Julia is an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, did, you know, evolved into the into the field. Um, my, my family is not as close. You know, I've I've lost two family members, immediate family members, to addiction. You mm-hmm. know, and i i I've seen people in my extended family also struggle. You know, so just that's part of. And and some of them are in recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think certainly that's informed some of the things that I believe about addiction, you know, right. um, and it's been a great ride. I mean, I, I'm a lifelong learner. I, mm-hmm. You know, I, I barely graduated from high school. There are some really colorful stories about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm i the longest part time college student in history. I mm-hmm. think, I, you yeah. know, I went from.
1: A <laughs> I might beat you, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: I went from having no degree, and back then you could get into our field, which was a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I became a counselor with a with a high school diploma, which I barely got because mm. I had w- worked that to happen. <laughs> um, and then went to school, got an associate's degree over a number of years, a bachelor's degree, and a master's degree, and actually, oddly enough, also teach at a university now. Right. So it's just a I don't have like a trajectory. I've never said I'm going to start here and I'm going to end up there. Um, I just am doing what feels right and what's nurturing me. Um, yeah, you made
2: the leap from the treatment um, system um, to uh, the executive director of ProA, and you told me that story. I'd love to share it for
3: us. So, so, <laughs> so the you know the 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 board, I had been getting get a reputation for being involved in advocacy work, all on the side, you mm-hmm. know, uh, advocating for people becoming involved in policy. And because I essentially poured most of my life into this, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I have hobbies. I'm bird watcher. I like walking around, photos, take pictures, read, but mostly it's this work, whether it's helping people, going to work professionally, like it's, you know, this is what I've done. And, and getting involved in learning about the policies, I started 25 years ago. So, you know, there was a position that opened up for the executive director. And I, I, my board, who, who, I knew some of them, but my name apparently was on their list. And they asked me to interview for it. I really wasn't thinking I wanted the job. Mm-hmm. I didn't answer questions like somebody who wanted the job. <laughs> um, you know, they said, "Well, what do you want to do in five years?" And like the the proper answer to the question is clearly, "I want to run this organization to the best of my ability." And I said, "I don't know what I want to do in five years, mm-hmm. and I, I think I might want to run a treatment organization." Mm-hmm. And they, I I think they're they're pretty clever people. They talked to me about you know what opportunities there were, and I had worked very closely with Pro A since when Donna was there. So I I knew who they were and I knew what they were about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I went home and I thought about it. And, you know, in recovery, one of the things, I think one of the lessons is that sometimes things just happen. And I thought about it and it made sense to me. Um, And I decided that that is what I needed to do. That if I didn't do it, let me put it this way, the regret of not doing it was something like uh, there would be a question there and I felt like I needed to answer that question. Mm -hmm. That's why I took the job.
2: So what have been some of your wins since you've taken, that you would say successes?
3: Some of my wins. Mm -hmm. We've done a a very good job at educating uh, some of the larger community and policy makers about addiction and about long-term recovery and the value of recovery. Mm -hmm. Done a lot of training and developing training um, and learning how to articulate some of the things that I've heard. And I, think, I think my, I don't know about a win, I've got a chance to listen to so many people.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And, and I, I, mean, I think beyond recovery, just to, beyond the, just being in recovery, I've had the opportunity to spend so much of my life listening to people who have had different life experiences. Mm-hmm. And being empathetic to that, you know, it, it, I think that that's changed my life,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, just listening and being open to other people's experiences. And, and like that, I, I think that's allowed me to see things differently. I don't know if that's a win, um, but it, uh, it has felt good. And, you know, we've gotten through, uh, you know, we, there are times when our funding was cut and, as a system that we, you know, work together to get things back. Um, you know, there's issues that come up around the rights of people in recovery and that we've done some work on that. Um, and just, you know, providing a face and a voice to a community and allowing uh, and, and, and helping other people to grow. And I think that my biggest win has been watching some of the people that I help nurture a little bit become Become recovery advocates and healers in their own right, and then just watching what they've done with that. I think that would be that would be the thing i would I would pin something to.
1: Yeah, I totally connect with that, and that's what I've seen with car is the multiplication, right of that passion, that purpose, that touching other lives. Um, something I really connected with with you that you just shared was we recently, you know, it's never just the one guest, it's like the cumulative effect. But I had this epiphany as somebody was sharing um, the crimes that they committed, pretty serious crimes that they committed while active in addiction. And I, I understood the trauma to them for what they did now that they're in recovery, where you always think about the victim, right? And it's not that the victim didn't have, you know, a terrible experience, but I never had empathy for the person who committed the crime before. But it suddenly occurred to me these were all done when their disease is active. And now that their disease is not active, they still have the trauma of their actions that they have to deal with. Mm -hmm. And that was a really big pivot for me. And it's based on just hearing people's stories, just letting them share their experiences. And this wasn't somebody who was asking for any sympathy or anything. But it's just that connection that finally mm-hmm. made.
3: I agree.
2: So uh, we've had uh, discussions about the state of the nation, if you will. Mm-hmm. What are and what are some of the challenges you see for recovery advocacy or um, the recovery community or even treating addiction? In, in, that's facing us right now.
3: Those are a lot of questions. I
2: know. I, I, I don't. Uh, so I'm just trying to get whatever thoughts are on the know, top I, of your head. I, I
3: don't. I don't pretend to have answers. And right. I, although I think, like, I have really gotten to appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll back up. I think w- when I got into recovery and the time of that I've had in this field, many of the people that I grew up with in recovery were 10 to 15 years older than me. So I did the math a number of years ago and realized that a lot like a lot of those people were going to be retiring and, and moving on so mm-hmm. I've seen myself sort of in a like in a transitional phase you know of, of our of our system so our history and the things that they knew became important to me to learn and to try to pass on and so you know most recently I mean I think I think there is an awful lot going on with the you know the addiction crisis with you know, social strife that we have in America with our our inability to hear and listen to each other and 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 not just our our country. I see some of those things in the recovery community as well. Mm-hmm. that like learning about our history because this isn't new. Um, since the beginning of time in recovery, we we have been known it to being a cantankerous, disagreeable group with <laughs> each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, occasionally we come together. And and I think like so I did all these, I did an interview with you, mm-hmm. I did an interview with other people as I'm sort of you know picking up on writing. Mm-hmm. And to listen and like figure out well what, what worked, you know. Um, and so those are the answers. I mean you said, and, and like I listen for the themes, and you know, we need to spend more time listening to each other deeply so that we can understand like where is our common themes and you know that's hard to do it seems like particularly in this era that you pick up on one thing that you disagree on like we all typecast each other Mm -hmm. you know and that's a that's a problem in the recovery community as well Mm -hmm. that we need to have some more you know deeper conversations about where things are going because so much depends on it
2: right you've written a few things and have taken your shots, haven't you? I have. <laughs>
3: yeah, and you know, for you know, for people out there, like I'm, I'm still learning. You know, right. I don't agree with myself hundred <laughs> percent. I can relate. Oh, to I that. love that. Uh, yeah, I
2: don't agree with myself either. All yeah, the time. That's a great line. <laughs>
3: um, what would you like to see? I'd like to see us avoid a major downturn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when I say that is I, I think when I look at history, and I, I, I may not have an accurate read of history, but my mm-hmm. read on history in recovery is that we, we work together and we build things up. You know, Bill White has done a tremendous service to us that I think that, that people will look back on, hopefully, 20, 30 years from now and recognize exactly what he has done. Oh, yeah. We just write down and capture as much of our history so that we can learn from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the he's created a seed bank of recovery you know and I hope we don't have to use it right um, you know I, what I'd like to see is this avoid a major downturn which has happened from time to time in recovery history where everything falls apart generally speaking because of our egos because of our disagreement or because of outside forces that sort of divide things up is my take and you know we can avoid that by focusing on what is in our common interest uh, and using recovery values—honesty, integrity, uh, empathy for each other—and and listen.
2: We've had some conversations too about recovery coaching. I mean, I think even an article you just recently penned—you called me the father of recovery coaching—which is kind of—I don't know how to take that <laughs> because it was just a—it was a group of people. Well, and we also talked about when you first got into treatment 36 years ago, that your counselors were a lot like the recovery coaches of today. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in what your thoughts are on recovery coaching, where that's headed, and how that ties in or doesn't to treatment these days.
3: Well, I mean, the kinds of things that I experienced in early treatment, like people worked with me on my goals, they listened to me, in recovery, they knew the language and the culture that I was being exposed to in recovery. And so the kinds of things that had to be rebuilt were things that we lost. Um, and I, I, I saw this stuff happening directly. And, and so we tend to overbeer, we, we overcomplicate things. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we, we actually work to exclude people. You know, and I've seen it. We make it harder for recovering people to get into the field. We we make it. We put all these administrative burdens and things in front of people. And then, you know, I've done surveys on our whole workforce, and you, you listen to people, and they essentially say, "I love to do the work. It doesn't pay well. There's a lot of stress. I love to do the work. At some point, when it becomes." It, this, the burdens and the barriers become so deep that they can't do the work. They leave. Like mm-hmm. this is not rocket science. Right. That's what's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's the process that we have to address. Um, and I and I think, I mean, I think, I've seen that pattern. Other people have seen that pattern. Um, and the recovery movement. What you know? Why I've said that you're the father of <laughs> of. Uh, you know, peer coaching mm-hmm. or uh, coaching.
2: Don't use that reco- word. Recovery Pierre. coaching.
3: I'm sorry. Don't use that word. Peer. strike sorry. that. Okay. No, yeah. I'm edit that
2: out.
3: I'm Is I heard from a couple of people who are in those rooms that 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 when there came a moment in the early grants when they had to sort of reinvent what was being done, mm-hmm. and you were already thinking ahead and working on, um, on on coach recovery coaching, mm-hmm. and that 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 made sense as a direction. So you you had a, like a pivotal role in that, whether you own it or not. That's, mm-hmm. that's uh, a couple of people told me that. I've, I've independent multiple sources. I mean, there you go.
1: You know, um, one of the things that has blown me away as I've pivoted from a corporate insurance career to working in the recovery field is that there are no requirements to be a licensed clinician that reflect any kind of substance use disorder education
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know it might be a, a topic in a one-hour class within a you know a, a major but that's about it yeah and I think that um that's a big area to pursue maybe think of as you're talking
3: used to like in pennsylvania the, the 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 credential came from us like we got together message carriers, ProAct. The credential for what? for uh, uh, Certified Peer Recovery
2: Specialist? Yeah, or, Certified
3: yeah. Recovery Specialist. Oh, there you go, you know, okay. And, and put together a credential that came from the original Recovery Community Organizations of Pennsylvania. And our certification board agreed to certify it. And mm-hmm. I, I think they did it like as an aside. They didn't think it would go anywhere. But as the money showed up, you know, there was a lot more interest. And other groups began to provide similar training, and they would credential all these different variations. And, you know, recently, they've taken over the whole thing. They haven't done it for other types of credentials, only for people with, you know, like addiction. So, it's actually a disparity. They're not doing it for counselors. Mm -hmm. They're only doing it for peers. And they won't even let somebody sit in a training with less than 18 months of recovery. So, So, like, like, we're essentially saying to people, you're not capable or competent enough to sit and learn. And, like, I know lawyers and doctors and Mm -hmm. people in recovery, we don't say that to them. But we have this mindset that these are incompetent people who are not capable. And, by the way, I was working in the field at 13 months. um, Mm -hmm. And and it was a good thing for me. Uh, And I grew, you know, and that is actually part of, we have to take a, It's implicit bias. Right. It's,
1: and we all know what those 18 months can consist of by individual. It can consist of nothing mm-hmm. or it can consist of way too much. You know, I mean, it, there's a huge paradigm of what 18 months recovery represents for an individual based on it's so, it. So it's so arbitrary.
3: I think recovery time is the, the worst way to measure whether somebody is is prepared to do this work. Well, I mean, I couldn't.
2: I, yeah, I pose it, but is recovery time consecutive or cumulative? So you have a, a person, let's say, with 20 years of recovery, has a momentary lapse maybe over a traumatic event, gets right back into recovery, puts together three months. Does this person have three months or 20 years in three months? So that's always the pushback against these arbitrary numbers. Because why does
3: it have to be consecutive? I think there's no question it's cumulative, <laughs> even if it isn't brief all right. like you still didn't learn leave lose that life experience even if you if you resumed use for two years right when you get back into recovery you you haven't learned all the you haven't lost all the things that you learned in your life during that time in fact it's probably made you stronger and you have gained additional insights
2: mm-hmm. yeah. but, but not that I want to go out and like, I, yeah. uh, Test your theory, or, or or anything like that. I have no interest in doing that either. <laughs> I don't have any interest in doing that. Um, but this is a this is the system, and the big picture, the big picture idea for me is, it's almost like when Bill White talks about this too is, the recovery movement creating their own system. You know, we're always trying to fit in with what the public payer wants to do or or this treatment system or all these funding mechanisms when I think we ought to grow and create our own funding mechanisms do I want my public tax my tax dollars to go to help provide recovery support services that just that notion I do But I don't want it to be funneled through our federal government or anything like that because I think they'll make a mess of it on how they distribute that money and where it goes. So uh, I'm still wrestling with that whole concept. And I know you have a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah, I
3: think we should have some of our talk. We don't have this huge benefactor. And there are things that we can do in the private sector and it can Mm -hmm. support it. But ultimately, you know, a lot of services are in the public sector for a reason. We're not in a position where where everything will be will be private. In fact, most substance use care is, is is funded publicly, you know, because we have all this deep stigma and and we have not gotten insurance to pay for it and all that. But I think I it has been valuable like spending time with you in the last few days mm-hmm. because it, and it's sort of part of our problem. And you know, we so recovery community centers that come from the recovery community we know it works because we're living it and we're seeing it and, and we're creating community and community that pulls people in validates mm-hmm. who they are as people and then grows them right the problem is then we're trying to take that and stick it into a system that doesn't fit it that you know creating individual units of services or group things and then i've seen a lot of programs go down centers go down this road and end up cutting off the things they they cut off the nurturing element and chase the, the fees to stay open yeah. and survive and actually end up destroying what they set out to do. So we have to, we, we do have to think and build a model that's actually based on, on the wisdom of the community rather than this outside structure that we has failed us. I'd
2: say it's a combination of a prescribed structure with a developmental process, and that comes from Bill Lofquist. But the prescribed structure can be very loose, just like the idea of a community, center, a recovery community center, right? There's not a lot of restrictions or requirements for, say, a senior citizen center, right? Uh, senior citizens get to kind of decide what that looks like and what happens and where the funding streams come from. I've used that exact same example. I think I got that from Tom Hill or Pat Taylor from Faces and Voices at It rings true with me, Um, and our state has been very, they've been um, kind of on the front edge, the cutting edge, if you will, by just dropping us a sum of money for recovery community centers and trusting us to be good stewards of that funding to develop a, a center that works for people. They don't have a lot of say or input, so we've never had to start to charge like, you know, here's your 15 minutes of recovery coaching service we're going to build the state for. I'm like, Oh my gosh, if we ever do that. We're done. I mean that, because then all of a sudden you're trying to get client clients. And I'll use that term instead of recovery to fit into this box so you can bill for that box. And that's not what we're about. It's a very fluid, dynamic, open connection type of, of service. And it is attraction more than promotion that it gets out in the community that people hear about our centers and they want to go, hey, what's, what's that place? I want to try that out.
1: Yeah.
3: Good points. I, I mean, I agree.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I use CCAR a lot because not just in terms of not having the means to get recovery support, but I have students that are terrified that their parents will find out about their use. So they're terrified that an insurance transaction is going to create that awareness with their parents. And being able to at least have a resource like CCAR to say, you can get free recovery coaching. You can connect with somebody about your recovery is really powerful. So, you know, we often think that it's those without means, but there's all kinds of reasons that people want to seek out recovery coaching and aren't ready for you know their world to know about it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: What you've also um, been recognized on some national levels, and uh, I know Rebecca met you, and she was really moved by your your talk a couple of years ago at Faces and Voices, as a, as was I. But what are as people are thinking about recovery, and you and you talking about training and educating. What is you want people to hear? What is it you'd like them to consider?
3: That recovery is if we provide people the kinds of help that meets their needs, that recovery is a probable outcome. Mm -hmm. Like, like we, you know, there are a couple million people in recovery, depending on how you count it, and and I think that that's a good start. You know, addiction is our leading problem and, you know, Like if you start drawing lines between how we spend money and resources and what destroys families and communities, like addiction is everywhere. But the reality is recovery is as well. And mm-hmm. so so first we have to recognize that that there are solutions, that people are finding them every day, and there are things that we can do to support more people getting there. And quite simply that. And and then we should start asking different questions about how we get people there because the systems that we have, you know, in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. you know, we that twenty eight day program is now a fourteen day program, you know, and and there's some discussion about moving it to be a ninety day program, which I think, by the way, that's a great thing that could be very helpful for some people, but it's still not thinking about it properly. I think I think the organizing question that I would ask. Is it like we know, and Bill White and some others have come up and understood that that looking at people in long-term recovery, when we hit five years of recovery, that we have an 85% chance of staying in recovery for the rest of our lives. So quite simply, how do we get more people to five years? And if mm-hmm. you start thinking that big, and it's not any one thing, it's all of the things. And mm-hmm. then you start thinking about how those things work together and paying attention to that. Like we could actually change America. And, mm-hmm. and I mean that sincerely. I think as a 21-year-old kid that got into recovery and recognized that I was going to die if I kept doing what I did, I, I it caused me to have to reevaluate my whole life. So, I, I mean, the way I look at it, I faced a terminal illness at age 21. And when that happens, like you figure, what is this all about? What am I doing here? Um, and I my life reformulated around that. And that's not uncommon in the recovery community. Correct. That So, like, if we're moving and supporting more people into those roles, people in recovery are out helping other people heal every day. And so the more of that energy we create, the the stronger a nation that we get. Like, the, the kinds of things, hope, purpose, and connection are how I think about recovery. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, if you read my writings, I, I, I actually write from both lenses, because I, I think... You know, our, I'm a, I'm patriotic, and I, I think I, I, I love this country, and I think that we don't those kinds of recovery messages are absolutely what our country needs. We we are all very different people, but we're all very connected, and we got to figure that out because uh, all of all of this is worth saving. And I think some of the recovery community is, is huge on that. Like we're we get civilly and civically involved. We care about our communities. We care about our neighbors. Um, those are kind of things that we should be like, hey, we want more of that. Well, no matter where it comes from, we want more of that.
1: That's a great way to wrap that. Uh,
2: yeah. Um, Bill, thank you. I, I can't tell you how much um, I've really enjoyed our time together. Thank you for taking the trip over out to Hartford and See in our little city and,
3: I, I've learned it's closer than Pittsburgh to my house. Uh, oh, there you go
2: <laughs> closer than Pittsburgh so um, and I Know when I and I say this often but when I grew up I didn't I can't recall ever hearing the words from my parents or anyone to that these four words that said I believe in you and I don't know if you've heard it recently I'll say this from my soul to your soul: is that I believe in you, and thank you.
3: Thank you, Phil. Mm-hmm. And I am just for listeners out there. What Phil has done is just ex, <laughs> expose, like, open up this program to me, and just, just. I've seen the people here. I've seen the people who are coming through here. I see the people that are growing, and it's like it's an organic way of of a. You did an organic program evaluation. You called me messy. I did call you messy. <laughs> yeah, a, a messy management style, which is good. Like you're <laughs> you're allowing things to happen and listening to the system so that you can help support nurturing it. And mm-hmm. that's that isn't top down. Systems are messy, mm-hmm. and you you better pay attention to that messiness if you're going to help it move. If you you know you're not a top down autocratic manager for in any way. <laughs> but um, I'm I. I'm grateful for you uh, for having me up here um, and for all the things that you're doing. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at ccar.us the number four recovery and on instagram at recovery matters podcast and you can use the hashtag recovery first to show support for our mission have questions comments feedback email us at podcast at ccar.us fire feeds fire so if yours is burning right now reach out and share it with someone